Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets SEL podcast. This is Andrea Samadhi. This interview will be broadcast on YouTube as well as the regular podcast channel. So be sure to look for the YouTube link in the show notes if you'd like to view the video. Today we have two pioneers in the field of educational neuroscience, Lori Desatel and Michael McKnight. I first found Lori from her TED Talk from Indianapolis when I was searching for anything in the field on educational neuroscience. And this is back in 2014. It was five years ago that I partnered with Arizona's Department of Ed, and I was urged from an Arizona educator to write another book that focused on the science behind the brain and learning. And back then there wasn't a lot of information out there like there is now. I found Judy Willis, I learned a little bit about the amygdala hijack, I read David Souza's How the Brain Learns, John Medina's Brain Rules, hired a neuroscience researcher, and I still needed help to figure out how the brain works. And then I found Lori, watched her videos, and, and got a chance to understand how the brain and learning were interconnected. In Lori's TED Talk, she mentions that neuroscience and education have come together, and it's a huge connection because everyday experiences change the brain structurally and functionally. And I thought this is incredible that we can finally accelerate learning with this understanding of the brain. And through Lori, I had a chance to see Michael's work and dive deeper into his understanding of adverse childhood experiences. So thank you both for pioneering this field and helping so many of us around the world that might have had a, a bit of a struggle with you know, understanding the parts of the brain because none of us have had a crash course in learning how the brain works and then suddenly this is where we are in times. So it's groundbreaking for, for you to make this relatable for all of us, so thank you. You're so welcome. Thank yeah. you for having us. Oh, you're welcome. Well, it's, it's a thrill for me to have you both because it's been many years of interacting on social media, following your work. I'll put all of your, your bio and your social media links in the show notes so that anyone who can wants to learn more can follow you because you're doing work in the trenches day by day, posting photos of everything, and it's incredible work. So um, that will be there for people that want to learn more. So Perfect. for people who are new to your work, um, can you give some background on how you both met and began working together that led you to write your first book together, Unwritten, The Story of a Living System? And your most recent book that I haven't been able to put down, Eyes Are Never Quiet, Listening Beneath the Behaviors of Our Most Troubled Students, and explain the movement of being trauma-informed. Michael, why don't you start with that? Because you, you like to share that story about how we met. Um, it, uh, we uh, met online, uh, and uh, I, what, what immediately drew me to, um, to Lori was... Uh, her first book, which uh, has a, a picture of a troubled child on the cover, and 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 it was just uh, I, I just uh, immediately drew my attention. I believe we met probably on Facebook first. Mm -hmm. um, Lori's extremely fast; she's much faster than I am. Uh, and um, before I knew it, I I was heading heading out to Indiana to. Uh, uh, to a, a, a conference that Lori, uh, and she continues to hold conferences. This one was at Marion University when she was met at Marion. Um, and, uh, and, and we finally got to meet face to face. Uh, uh, and uh, it just, uh, it was just a, a, a just a, 
a unique way to meet because without uh, stumbling into her book, I, I don't think we would have ever met. That's pretty powerful to write a book together just from meeting via social media because I'm <laughs> just involved in writing a book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was, um, you know, I think, you know, and adding to what Michael said, I think we found together um, a passion for working with children and youth. Um, and, you know, again, this was five, six years ago. So the adverse childhood experience study was was really not known um, by many people. I mean, I remember learning about it probably six, seven years ago and I began to share it. Michael, would, I think that's about the same time frame that, <clears throat> excuse me, he learned about it. And so we both really connected on how the pain that children and adolescents are bringing into schools and districts um, was deeply affecting how um, they learn, how they relate, how they sensed and felt their way around the world. So, um, you know, we, we really looked at education together as a living system. We talked about that. We were in Pittsburgh writing Unwritten, and we bought a recorder so that we could actually record ourselves wow. talking through the first few chapters. And I think the theme of adversity and trauma and resiliency really emerged through our conversations. And um, we knew that we had to move forward together um, with these books. And we are actually, um, I, gotta, I gotta get Michael going here because we've got another book that's got a deadline of May 1st on um, relational brain aligned discipline and rewiring our perceptions as a society for discipline with pain-based behaviors. Oh, congratulations. That's so exciting because I watched you write the second one together and I didn't, I couldn't piece together how you knew each other. And, you know, Michael's in New Jersey and I know you're in Indianapolis. <laughs> I was yes. trying to understand how you're doing this. Yes, and absolutely. Powerful. Excellent work. Thank you. Uh, especially it's been with a lot of fun. Well, even as, as parents, you know, we, we don't understand what we're doing to our children with these adverse childhood experiences, so, you know, family members and neighbors that have children going through trauma. And then it started to open my eyes to, well, maybe that's why the students are <laughs> causing so many troubles in the classroom. It, it mm -hmm. just was, we, we could never understand or, or find the reason for the behaviors. Right, absolutely. And that brings me to my next question because I could ask it two different ways. I could focus on the problem and say, what could we possibly do to make an impact on our schools and students today, knowing that we're in crisis? There's drug use, bullying, suicide, suicide ideation, anxiety. Or I could ask it from the point of view that you take in your book, where we change the narrative and focus on the solution by saying, how does shifting away from the traditional disciplinary approach to acknowledge the impact of stress on behavior and our students' ability to learn shift the results that you're both seeing in schools today. Michael, you want to start with that? Sure, I'll give it a shot. I, I, uh, I think uh, part, part of the shift is, is really uh, to help teachers recognize what's, what's underneath the surface behavior they're seeing in young people. Um, so, so they see that they see the surface behavior. It's disruptive. They're not paying attention. They can be disrespectful, disobedient. They see all those behaviors. Um, but what we're trying to link is is 
is that's just surface behavior. What's underneath that behavior um, is a great deal of pain. Um, so we're trying to trying to switch their perception of behavioral problems um, uh, from from geez these kids have come in here to cause me problems all day toward hey these kids are carrying in uh, toxic levels of stress um, and what we're watching is 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 behavior of anybody uh, that would be carrying in that kind of pain. Uh, so, so I think that, that, that helps begin to subtly make that shift, um, uh, for teachers. Um, and, and underneath that surface behavior, um, uh, is really what, what is driving the behaviors, uh, that we see every day in, in schools all across our country. Yeah. And I, I want to add to that. I couldn't agree with Michael Moore. Um, and, and, you know, so that narrative switch that you and Michael have so beautifully kind of laid out is really now a part of a new neurobiology. Um, you know, we now understand that these children and adolescents um, are coming in with a different um, biology and, and chronic behavioral issues are regulation issues and those are physiological issues. So like it or not, agree with it or not, this is, we are being informed like never before. We intuitively know this, you know, we know that there's something going on. Um, you know, a kid gets so triggered so fast. Um, it, you know, there's an outburst that came out of nowhere and we just think, what the hell just happened? But when you understand what it feels like and what a child senses in a survival brain state, all the pieces begin to fall together. And, and we know that any of us, if we don't feel safe and if we don't feel connected, we don't learn. And, and really it's and, and that, you know, when I heard that, I thought, my God, that mimics how the brain develops. You know, we move from brainstem, we develop from brainstem to the cortex, the brain develops from the inside out. And so every area, and I was just listening to a documentary by Dr. Perry, Bruce Perry, and he's really, he, he really emphasizes that we need to be aware of two things. First of all, that the brain does not work in separate areas, and we know little to nothing about the brain at this point. What we know is informing our educational practices, the social neuroscience of attachment, but we know very, very little yet. And, and the brain works well when it is integrated and organized. That's what I'm learning. That's what I've learned this week is that it's well-being, social and emotional well-being is about integrated areas that are, you know, syncing up and, and connections that are being made all over the brain because the brain is an organ, but it acts like a muscle. So these kids that are disruptive and these kids that look oppositional and defiant have not had the experiences that they need to develop those skills of empathy or of, of kindness. So it, it really, that's, that's the shift. And, and that's why we've got to understand the why before we start to plug in all these strategies. Yeah. I think the other part of the shift too is, 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 um, 
Lori talks a lot about uh, our ability to, to, uh, to connect with kids. Uh, I like the term trauma responsive more than trauma informed because we, we are, we're tasked to respond to pain-based behavior um, and we're tasked um, to connect with those kids who are really um, uh, relationship reluctant uh, they're, you know, they're, they're resistant to relationship, uh, but we have to frame that as a form of protection, not, not so much resistance. Uh, but these kids uh, are really, uh, the behaviors we see on the surface behaviors are, are really protective behaviors yeah. from anybody that has had those kind of experiences. Uh, and I think um, helping people uh, look, look at their own lives through the lens of adversity uh, and the struggles they've had helps connect that too. Uh, and we're doing some of that with the, with the work we're now spreading into with police officers um, and, and, and sharing some, uh, some of that work um, through some of the pains and traumas that they deal with every day. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's, there's so much here. I could continue asking questions for the next couple of hours, but just sticking to the classroom because I, I would go on another tangent now, but I know firsthand about stress. Uh, my first teaching assignment was a behavioral class. And like many, I burned out before I even got started. And if you were to ask any of my friends back then, I was the least likely to have quit. And when I was reading your book, chapter one, Eyes Are Never Quiet, I actually started getting teary-eyed with the advice that Michael gave an educator, who Lori later shared was her daughter. So this makes the story so impactful because she was at the end of her rope. I remember being at the end of my rope thinking this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I remember how frustrating it felt and didn't make the decision quickly or lightly to leave the profession. But I, it made me wonder, what if with all that's going on with teacher shortages these days, what if all new teachers were given Michael's advice and were mm -hmm. given another angle to survive instead of just survive in this profession, what would it look like? Michael, take that one, and then I'll I'll follow you. Well, yeah, we really don't uh, uh, don't do well with really uh, uh, preparing teachers for the classrooms of today. I, I, I'm an adjunct at a, at a local college here in New Jersey, and, uh, and and you know Lori's working with future teachers, and and we're just not uh, we're not giving them the tools of the understanding of of the worlds they're about to to walk into, and 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 what they're what they're going to going to be experiences experiencing as a result of of of, uh, of the teaching they've chosen to do, and I think many teachers. I mean, you know. I've heard, you know, our profession described as a profession that eats its young. So your experience is not rare. I often uh, uh, look back at my uh, first three years of trying to teach uh, what what our our system calls emotionally disturbed adolescents, and and it was uh, it was scarring. I mean, it was uh, it was uh, it was really a painful experience. But uh, eventually, uh, uh, I. I, I I, and I'm not sure exactly why, but, but I, I started to allow those kids to teach me. 
uh, a little bit about what their needs were and what their life experiences uh, were like. Uh, and, and, and I did some, I, I was lucky to run into some uh, really, really great mentors that are, have been around really forever, but are hidden. Uh, we have a, a great uh, hidden history of, of people that have worked with, with troubled young people forever. Uh, but we're not teaching it in our schools and we're not sharing uh, our, our, even our history of, of what makes successful teachers uh, uh, for kids uh, that, that carry in that kind of pain-based behavior. Yeah, and I, 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 I want to add to that too. Um, you know, we at Butler are beginning, we're, 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 we're starting to really um, look at, you know, how significant this is. Um, because I think if it, whether you are, I mean, it doesn't matter what university, um, we are in a new time. And if you, in fact, our Dean, our interim Dean just shared with our faculty, three buckets of concerns that our students shared, because, you know, you always get the positive and that's great. We were, this was our faculty meeting this past Thursday. And so in these three buckets that um, Dr. Candle shared with us, one of the main buckets was behavior. I'm struggling with the behavior of kids that I, you know, in, in my classrooms. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Dr. Candle and I looked at each other because, you know, these behaviors promote contagion mm -hmm. and human beings are contagious. And it's so difficult not to personalize. It's so difficult not to escalate with that child. And, and, and it's, you know, I, you can be in the classroom 30 years, you know, 35 years. And, and I'm only in the classroom, you know, a, a morning and an afternoon a week. And I can feel myself escalate, you know, just in there just for a short amount of time. So this is critical. Um, behavior management is not about kids. It is about us. It is our brain state. Mm -hmm. And you know, as you, you've heard Michael and I say, and we've written in the book, you know, a, a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a child. And the traditional discipline that we have infused and implemented for 100 years is, is not working with kids who carry in pain. Um, and, you know, we're, we're unintentionally re-traumatizing and reactivating those stress response systems. And they come in, again, with very little to no experience or experiences, um, you know, on how to be kind, how to empathize, how to share, um, you know, how to, how to place yourself in someone else's shoes. It's survival. Survival trumps learning it trumps relational um, milieu. I mean, it is about that survival brain and it looks selfish and it can look very disrespectful. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely, and, and uh, one of my, my mentors and, and uh, a great guy that I stumbled into, Dr. Nicholas Long, uh, talks about um, uh, teachers needing, uh, educators needing to be uh, thermostats, not thermometers. So, so can we can we regulate ourselves enough uh, to deal with the emotion and, and the affect that we're seeing in front of us, uh, and and uh, and that's 
uh, that's why I love combining uh, my stuff with Lori's because she provides that neuroscience with it. Uh, and that's now, uh, that's now just uh, really expanded some of the things uh, uh, that, that troubled kids and, 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 mm-hmm. and some, some great mentors have taught me over decades. Uh, mm-hmm. And now with the brain science, we, we know what we're, we're really looking at and we, we know that we have to regulate these kids before they're going to learn. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that look like for well-being for educators, though? Because it's so fast-paced. I remember not even having time to use the restroom, let alone take some breaths. You know, I know what I would do to regulate myself now, and I know the time that it takes. It's a considerable amount of time. How mm-hmm. do we do this with educators knowing, bam, 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 they're, you know, Spelling tests, switching classes. Well, I, I, Michael, you can pick up. I mean, but I, I want to, I want to say something because it'll leave my mind as fast as some of the things that. I mean, you're right, Andrea. Um, you know, we we hardly have time to, you know, to go to the bathroom. I mean, it's just it is fast paced. But I think um, one of the things that um, has to be a priority is being intentional about educator brain state in your building. And that's why when Michael and I work with teams and districts and schools, um, these resiliency teams, um, we are turning down schools that do not have their principal or their leadership on board with this. Because it takes the leadership of a building to really not only be intentional, but to restructure how we can take care of one another as as a staff. in uh, northern Indiana right now, um, a school corporation, Tippecanoe School Corporation, it's a very large uh, school corporation, um, they're, they're looking at um, some other grants where they can provide a neurocenter in their schools at, for, um, you know, for teachers. Nice. So in, in a Fort Wayne school that I'm working with, the principal sat with us in that conference room and she actually began to make a schedule where every single educator in that building, paraprofessional, whoever was, you know, working with these children had a time, a couple of times, a few minutes, a couple of times a day where they could go take care of themselves into kind of a, a, you know, a reset area. Mm -hmm. So they could get a drink of water, you know, take some deep breaths, pick an affirmation out of a jar, doodle for a minute, listen to some music for a minute. It's critical. It really is. It really is. It's good to see that this is the direction that it's going. So what would be your vision for this work? We know where it is now. What, where do you see schools five, ten years from now? Michael, you want to start with that? Well, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as, as schools. I think it's almost individual places. So, I mean, and they're pretty unique. Uh, so, 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 uh, what what my vision would be is 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 can we um, create enough um, movement uh, around the work that we're doing, creating resiliency teams in schools, uh, following up that work with those teams, supporting them over time uh, to begin to make these shifts because these are not quick fixes. Uh, they're, they're, you know, five-year uh, change plans uh, over time uh, to begin to, to make those shifts 
Um, so, so I think, uh, and I see the school as the hub of that kind of work where, where the school can even uh, begin that work and move out from the school into the community. Um, and help the communities even become more responsive to the needs uh, of, of the people in it and the kids that are living there. So, so it, it, is, uh, it, it is contingent on, on um, adults coming together and, and really creating um, a, a community of learners within their building that they can spread this out. Uh, and that's what we're kind of seeing in pockets of, of the schools that are really running with some of the work we're doing. Uh, it's been exciting and, and really hopeful. Mm -hmm. And I would add, I would add to to that that um, I don't know if I would call it a vision, but my I'm hopeful that these um, you know brain aligned regulation and what we're calling uh, attachment strategies touch points become a part mm -hmm. of our procedures and routines and how we begin a day and rituals at the end of the day where we are, um, as John Cita so beautifully um, states, we're creating family privilege in schools where um, students come and they, again, are seen, are noticed, are felt, and they are given the experiences and opportunities to practice those skills um, that kind of upshift, that kind of move them from that survival, you know, those lower brain regions, organizing those up into this prefrontal cortex where we do life and where we do school. And it does not happen overnight. Okay. It takes <clears throat> forever. And that's the hardest part of this, um, I think, is that sometimes we, we know that we could be working so closely with a child for an entire academic year and not see the effects but they are there. And, right. and that is, um, that's one of the things that I'm always sharing is that these circuits um, take time to um, hardwire and, and to develop. They do, and that brings me to the, the standards because I've been watching Castle's work with the standards. I've been watching you, Lori, as you pitched in <clears throat> Indianapolis. What do you see would be your, your vision to have the standards all aligning? I mean, so in Indiana right now, it's so interesting. I just had a call with the DOE this afternoon at 2.30, and we are actually, so the social and emotional competencies that um, were published in January here in our state, um, they are really being implemented and operationalized, and we're, we're going to add to these because I mean, that's how quickly the research changes from when Dr. Brandy Oliver and I created those last summer to a year, like a year later. Um, <clears throat> I told um, the DOE this afternoon, I said, I've got more templates to share, but we've got more for the toolkit. So I think that our social and emotional competencies must have um, the educational neuroscience. Um, part to them. And that's what we did here in Indiana. We added sensory motor integration. And, and, and that, again, is in, line, in alignment with how the brain learns from the back to the front and from the inside out. And we um, also added growth mindset, which is Carol Dweck's work, but it's neuroplasticity. 
And, and so um, we're teaching that neuroanatomy to the students. So I think that's the way we have to go because it's, it's, it's where the research is, you know, that's what we know. And, and it's changing, it's changing daily. It really is. And, and it's exciting times when I was watching you getting involved. I thought, I can't wait till all, all the other states get on board. And, and again, you're pioneering the way. And thank you for that. What's powerful to me uh, as an ex-administrator uh, and, and, and in pocket social emotional learning uh, in, the, in, in the world that I come out of, which is uh, uh, where troubled kids go when they're removed from regular schools. Uh, uh, social emotional learning's been around for, an, for a, long, a fairly long period of time. Lori's work connecting it with the brain and neurosciences, I think, where we have to go. One of the benefits I saw of, of, of teaching uh, uh, social emotional learning to kids is it improves adults' social emotional learning. Uh, ours, uh, we're not very used to, uh, as adults, uh, working with some of these topics. Uh, I know when I first st uh, started to work with, with, uh, with what drives behavior, it's not behavior, it, it's thinking and emotion. Uh, and and we, uh, we don't talk much about emotion and patterns of thinking and, and feeling and what we as adults are supposed to do with these feelings that we're picking up from the children in front of us. So, so I think that's been, uh, uh, that's going to be a, a, a big benefit of social emotional learning is, is improving our own, the adult skills in those areas. I agree. Well, I want to thank you both for sharing your knowledge with the world. I urge any listeners who want to learn more about your work to follow you. You can follow Lori at Desitel underscore PhD, M McKnight 32 on Twitter, and you can find them on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram to see their strategies in action. Thank you both. Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. See you later. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.